when we come to practice in the monastery, we're learning to go against craving and attachment. So it's a bit of a struggle, the nature of our practice. It's an internal struggle. We're competing with our own accumulated craving and attachment built up over many years and lifetimes. And the flavor of the practice is we're learning to frustrate our own desires based on ignorance. Using Dhamma Vinaya, using wisdom, using peace. We're frustrating craving and attachment. And this is where the competition or the struggle arises. Well, that's the way the Buddha taught, is the way the Buddha practiced, is the way Ajahn Chah practiced. Out in the world, the lay life is also a struggle. We have to compete to earn a living, to get on in the world. So often people don't understand what it's like living in a monastery, living the holy life, the bhikkhu life. It's because the struggle is going on inside, can't necessarily be seen. Sometimes we see it through the practices we take on keeping of the Vinaya, the rules of training, the ascetic practices and different practices that we determine to keep. They may display our resolution and our discipline, but often it's a very private struggle and others may not be fully aware what we're up to. It's our good fortune that the Buddha brought us to this point. He's like the one who sets us off on this journey into this uh, struggle with the kilesas, with the cause of suffering. But he can't actually fight for us. He's only the one who leads us to the beginning of the, the path through the teachings and the ways of practice that we've inherited since the time of the Buddha. It's a bit like someone say we're a stranger in this area and we wanted to get to, water, to Melbourne. They could lead us to the Warburton Hideway and say, well, you follow that and follow the Marunda Highway and you'll get into Melbourne. But we're the ones who actually have to walk or travel along the highway. 
The Buddha doesn't actually do the practice for us, but he shows us, has shown us how to do it, what to do. Just as our parents did before we even came into the monastery, they show us what to do when we're born into the world. They also are bringing us to this point. They brought us into the world, fed us and educated us, brought us up so that we can be at this point that we can practice. Beyond them it's our karma. It's our karma that brings us to the point where we have a human birth, we have parents who give birth to us. <coughs> it's our karma that brings us to <coughs> meet with the Buddhist teachings. When we come into the monastery, we have some faith, some satire in the, in the practice that it's something that will be of benefit for us, for others. But that faith that brings us into the robes, into the monastery, is not yet, you might say, true faith or stable, solid faith. It's a cause for us to come here to practice. It's not yet the cause for progress or enlightenment from the practice. It's satire, it's that belief, the confidence in the teachings that they can help us, guide us to peace and understanding. But we actually have to build on that once we're in the monastery. We have to develop faith as a, a power. Satha Palat, the five powers, the five Indriya that help us. These supporting factors that we develop in our practice. And Satha as a Palat, as a power, is a Satha that sustains us in the practice you know, on a daily basis, something we keep returning to to nourish our efforts and to bring up more effort because we're involved in a struggle. Struggles can be difficult, tiring, wearing, and so on. So we need something to sustain us through a struggle. You need satire as a power, a quality that isn't going to be easily shaken. That's the kind of quality we have to develop through our practice by reflecting on our own practice, on, our, on the efforts we've made so far. Develop more confidence in in the practice itself, that it can work. It can lead us to more peace, more understanding, and the end of suffering.
subtle faith is like a foundation or a root, a firm foundation, a strong root of a tree, of a plant, and it gives rise to many other qualities coming with it, feeds into patience and effort and energy. It's also guided by wisdom. It has to be guided by wisdom so we don't end up putting our faith in the wrong place or in the wrong way. It's something we have to keep returning to over and over again, reflecting on the quality of faith and what we believe in what we have confidence in, conviction in. Otherwise it's difficult to summon up the effort, the energy to compete with our own chilesas, our own craving and attachment. We need the wisdom to help give us some skill in how to apply our faith and our energy and effort. We need some wisdom to see the value of frustrating that which is what we're used to. We're used to following our own desires and attachments to the point where we don't even see them or recognize them as that, as craving and as attachment. We don't even see the cause of suffering in our own minds so much of the time. So we need some wisdom, contemplate what's going on, contemplate what leads to what, and observe from our own experience. If we have suffering in the mind, we're not peaceful, we're not content, we're not happy, it has a cause. And the reason we suffer is because we haven't yet seen the cause. We haven't yet abandoned the cause. We have to keep looking and learning. We're here in the monastery to learn from our experience and to develop the qualities and the skills that help us to learn. And we've seen and learned some things but there's still much we haven't learned. That's why we still are subject to suffering. We still have our attachment to our moods. We get caught into happiness, suffering, pleasure and pain. We identify with these experiences over and over again. So we're learning to develop enough awareness and understanding to see how the mind does that, how does it get caught into happiness and suffering? How does it take these moods, these conditions of mind as self? Why does it identify so strongly with every little thing that happens, good and bad, making us feel happy or unhappy? 
we're learning and looking more closely at our experience. And the training in the monastery is all geared supporting that. The training in the Vinaya it does frustrate our attachments as we have to think about what we're doing, how we use our time, how we speak, how we act, what we're thinking about, the intentions that are coming up in our mind. In the Vinaya training that we do, we're learning to discern between wholesome and unwholesome. Sometimes it's as simple as that to learn what is an unwholesome state of mind, unwholesome attitude, unwholesome way of thinking. What is a wholesome, skillful state of mind is to be able to recognize that and then to act accordingly with Dhamma Vinaya. So to abandon an unwholesome state of mind, having known it's unwholesome, will abandon it and to bring up and develop wholesome states of mind. Sometimes practice is as simple as that, just bringing awareness to the present moment and knowing, oh, this is unwholesome, this is going to lead to more suffering, more attachment. And not giving in to it. And this is where we have to frustrate Kilesa. We have to sometimes say no sometimes even squash it down. Not always, maybe that's not a, always the right method, but sometimes you have to, have, have to just squash the mind down. Put pressure on it not to follow Kilesa. Sometimes we have to arouse energy when we're lazy, you can't be bothered. Sometimes just arouse interest in Dhamma Vinaya when the mind is turned away, maybe called into boredom or dullness or distraction. This is frustrating Kilesa. You're learning how to do that, have enough mindfulness and enough wisdom to see that that's what we need to do. And give oneself enough time with the practice of patience to actually see the results of it so that one can gain the confidence and the belief that it does work. One can see, hmm, sitting and walking meditation does bring the mind to a higher state, more peace, more serenity. It does bring us more insight turning back, watching ourselves, looking at ourselves more often. So often in the beginning of our practice, we're just caught up in views and opinions about everything, what we like and what we don't like, what's right and what's wrong, whether it's about the world or about our own practice or what is right practice techniques and so on. When we come into training the monastery though, it's helping us to set aside that habit of always attaching to views and opinions and working on that level because it can be deluding, it feeds our greed, our anger, our delusion.
We're learning to set aside personal preferences. Again, frustrate some of our desires, but in, with the purpose to it, with the purpose of raising our awareness to a higher place, bringing up more mindfulness and wisdom where we can see desire as desire, but not necessarily get caught up in it. And see a view or opinion that we're holding to as a view not get caught up into it, not just blindly hold on to it, but to be able to look at our own views and recognize them for what they are. And that practice is not always easy, so it requires effort, persistent effort. It requires these other qualities, the sata and the wiriya, the sati and the wisdom. Keep applying the technique applying our own mind to the practice. Viriyena dukkha machedi will only overcome suffering through persistent effort to the practice. So to keep coming back to sitting, to walking, following the korwat and the rules and the practices of the monastery. When the mind strays from that, then to bring it back and then to observe what happens, give the time the patience and the time to see, well, over time, if you keep applying to the practice, you do get results from it. The mind does brighten up. It can see its way through even the most darkest mood, the most unpleasant moods and memories. Restlessness, agitation, boredom, dullness, all the different hindrances that come up in our practice if we are willing to work with them, give enough time and put enough effort in, we can see that all of them as just hindrances, just as what they are. Just different unwholesome states of mind that come up according to their causes but then pass away. When those causes pass, those states of mind pass by and learn not to just identify with them and get caught up in them all the time. This is where our satara and our wisdom develops because we see over time the truth that the Buddha was talking about through our own experience. Not just something we're believing from a book or from what someone said anymore, but we actually know for ourselves you know, that state of awakening, the buddha, the, the mind of the one who knows, arises and sees things as they are, at least partially, at least sometimes. Then you get more faith to keep practicing because you realize if you keep practicing, then other things that you didn't notice before will start to become clear, will be revealed through the practice. You trust in the method of the practice to do that. You know, the practice of a samana is not competing with other people. It's not like in the world, the way worldly, in the way of the world where people get caught into endless competitions and rivalries and even end up having conflicts. Our competition is with ourselves and with the defilements within us. 
as a noble struggle. It's the highest struggle that a human being can be engaged in and the more satisfying struggle brings the mind to a true resolution, a true peace as its result. But we have to have that ability to keep coming back to the practice. In Navasa we have three months of very good opportunity just to keep applying ourselves over and over again, day by day. We've got time to sit, to walk. The community is stable. There's not a lot of different things happening or coming and going. And just use it as a solid period of time, a retreat, to really develop some consistency in the efforts that we put into our practice. And from that, the results come. And the mind will understand a little bit more, hopefully. We have to use you know, the techniques that the Buddha gave us. He brought us to this point, so we should apply what he, what he gave us, use it. As bhikkhus, we we might reflect on what really what is Dhamma Vinaya if you were to summarize it in practical terms in your daily practice, what you're doing, applying Dhamma Vinaya. It's doing that which is beneficial for yourself or others and avoiding not doing that which is not beneficial to yourself or others that which will bring suffering to yourself or others, you avoid. Whether it's just um, holding on to an unskillful mood, mental state, which should be abandoned, or in our speech or our actions, whatever level, just using that reflection brings you to the Dhamma Vinaya and all the other practices that we do, the rules of training, the meetings, the routines, the ways of behavior and so on, all come from that. To keep reflecting back on what I'm doing, is it actually creating suffering for myself or not? Is it creating suffering for others or not? That's where we learn, that's where we learn where wisdom arises, keep reflecting in that way. as we become more skilled, more experienced in keeping the Vinaya and using it as a skillful means and then using meditation objects, using buddho, using the breath and then reflecting on the Dhamma with that experience then we get to know ourselves better. We know our own strengths, our own weaknesses. We know what's dangerous for us because we know our own character. We know what's supportive for us. We know our own mind when it's peaceful, when it's not. When it's deeply peaceful, or when it's just temporarily peaceful, when it's not peaceful at all. We get to know that through experience so we can trust our own judgment better 
based on our Dhamma practice, no longer just based on opinions and views and just sort of what people tell us or what we've heard or, or what pops into the mind, but actually through experience we know for ourselves what is peaceful and what is not. That principle of practice doesn't actually change whether you're just a beginner or maybe very, very advanced down the path of practice. In the end, it's what what's going on in your mind is is what you're doing, making you more peaceful, clearing the mind, brightening it, or is it darkening it and bringing the causes for more suffering? So every day we practice, we put effort into our Vinaya training, we put effort into meditation, sitting and walking. So you're constantly reflecting back on your own mind. Where is it at? What level is it at today? How peaceful or not peaceful am I today? If it's not peaceful, what are the causes? What's going on? If I am peaceful, what are the causes for that? How did it arise? And taking that as important to be aware of your own, the level of your own mind, whether it's peaceful or not. That's a skill that we learn. Whether it's just learning to just be, to, to be aware whether you're content or not in the robes, in the monastery, following the way of practice or not, or on a much deeper, subtler level, just knowing whether your mind is calming down, attaining some samadhi or not whether it's momentary samadhi or deeper level of samadhi, to know that is the mind attaining any samadhi at all? Is it going quieter than usual or not? Am I dropping the hindrances or not? This is a skill that we gain through the practice. And you can measure the own, you can be aware and measure the, the level of your own mind day by day as you get more skilled, as you do it more often. You know, all oh, today things... Mind's getting more confused, more troubled. Better be careful here. Better put more effort into my practice. Or to know the mind is, today the mind is very solid, very firm, very bright, very refined. This is important at every level of the practice. It's not something just for experts or just beginners. It's for all of us getting to know your own mind and the state of your mind and the level of your mind, whether it's wholesome or not, whether there's some mindfulness present or not, samadhi or not, and then wisdom. And the reason we get to know and start to learn about the level of our own mind is so that we can also see where we can develop wisdom Obviously, if the mind is very confused all over the place, there won't be much wisdom there yet. When the mind is quiet, then obviously the mind can turn to contemplate, understand things better, can do that easily, more easily. This ability to gauge 
one's own mind and the level of one's mind to know how peaceful or not and to recognize it. The word Ajahn Chah uses wasi to know the the level of your mind and have that skill of entering or bringing the mind to a state of calm and bringing it out and contemplating or letting it withdraw and contemplating knowing how to do that having the, the skills to put more effort into calming the mind when we need to having the skills to contemplate training in wisdom and contemplation as well having the skills to know when we're contemplating and it's no longer working the mind is just going all over the place and to bring the mind back to calm whether that state of calm is just brief and momentary or it's very deep but to know how to do that to know how to calm the mind down and then to know what supports that if the mind is not calm or to know the way of practice that will support the mind to calm calm down so to understand the role of sila the core what to see how if we are not so disciplined in our behavior external behavior how we act how we speak then internally it's reflected the mind will not settle down easily if we're more careful with our actions, our speech, then we can sustain mindfulness better, we can keep the mind at a more peaceful level and then contemplation goes better, goes smoother. We keep learning this skill keep by reflecting on our own practice and observing, but not from just basis of views and opinions and being idealistic but actually learning from the reality of our experience and being honest if it's not peaceful well, why not what do I need to do to improve how can I improve if it is peaceful how can I sustain that when we're working on the level of views and opinions we always get it wrong views and opinions in the way of you know, just blind attachment to ditti and mana we tend to just attribute things we say, oh it's because of this because of that but it's not coming yet from wise reflection back onto our behavior and what's actually going on it tends to be more just guessing or fumbling around oh, it must be because of the place or the people or the meditation object Maybe I'm in the wrong kuti or the wrong this, the wrong that. And often we just caught up into a whole superficial description of what's going on. We have to learn how to recognize that as well, not just to gauge everything according to our views, opinions, our preferences, but actually to look more closely at how mindfulness is developed and how we lose it. In the end, it's, you know, it's the key to our practice is learning to maintain mindfulness. Use the core what and the Vinaya training to bring up mindfulness, to pay attention to the present moment. What we're doing, you put on a robe, you eat your meal, you go back to your kuti, 
you sit meditation, you walk meditation, what is the quality or the level of mindfulness at each moment in each activity? What are the dangers? How do we lose our mindfulness? How does the mind get distracted and then end up confused or caught up into moods again? And the more we pay attention to what's actually going on, we actually set aside the, our old habit of just going according to preferences and views and opinions. We actually look and learn through bringing up mindfulness. Ajahn Chah said, just if you want to practice mindfulness and develop strong mindfulness, just use bowing as a, a way to constantly bring your mind back to the present moment in course of your day. So you get up from to leave your kuti before you pick up your things, you just bow. And you go away maybe to the hall and you bow. Leave the hall, you bow. Go back to your kuti, you bow. Just going in and out of your kuti, going to the toilet, bow first, come back, you bow again. Constantly bringing your mind back to the present moment, learning to pay attention to exactly what you're doing, who you are, where you are, what you're doing. Bringing up sati sampajanya. Then you really get to see your own mind. You can see wholesome states of mind, unwholesome states of mind. You can see distraction coming. You can start working to frustrate that habit of always wanting to just think and fantasize and proliferate. Frustrate the desire just to always seek distraction in other things like conversation or food or sleep. Actually catch desire and attachment as they're arising and frustrate them, not just give in to them all the time. If we always just follow what we want to do, then the mind kind of stays weak and flabby. It doesn't get very bright, it doesn't get sharp, wisdom doesn't get very deep. We have to also learn how to go against desire, using mindfulness, using wisdom, using the core what. There's nothing new, we, we're new to the practice maybe, but people have been practicing for thousands of years and these same issues have been coming up over and over again. This is human beings. It's the nature of the unenlightened mind, it tends to just keep following desire, what it likes, doesn't like. Whether it's just in thinking or actually in speaking and acting actions as well. And even becomes people's sort of view on life, like the long nailed Brahmin that went to see the Buddha when he was on Gichiguta Mountain with Sariputta. He's actually he's a, an old Brahmin living off in the forest on his own. He's one of those probably been practicing for many years but just doing it all the way he wanted not living with others just wants to do everything the way he likes he's got his long nails he's got his uniform Brahmin uniform his sort of hermit's uniform but he's got his viewpoint 
came to see the Buddha just to check out whether his viewpoint is correct or not, or maybe even just to teach the Buddha a thing or two, perhaps. He normally he wouldn't listen to anyone, any teacher he didn't listen to. The reason being that his view was that he only accepts and wants that which is agreeable to him. Anything that's not agreeable to him, he doesn't want, doesn't accept. That's his way of practice, his core what? Which sounds quite good, but it didn't bring him to enlightenment. It just made him full of ego, conceit, very attached to that view. He's always turning away from the truth, not actually recognizing truth because he's stuck in his own view. So talking to the Buddha, and the Buddha said, well, even that view is not correct. It's not something you should hold on to. Do you want old age sickness and death? No, I don't want, I don't like them, don't want them. Oh, but you're going to get them. The Buddha started to point out how his view on just wanting, just attaching or holding on to that which was agreeable wasn't really in line with reality. In a way it's like a, just a view to get out of facing up to truth, to escape from things that he didn't like, but not really escaping from suffering. He made the Brahmin think, think a bit more deeply about his own view, look at it more closely. Only, I only want that which is agreeable to me. That which is agreeable I'll accept, I'll take, I'll have. Anything not agreeable I don't want. But there's a lot in life that we have to accept that's not agreeable. There's no way around it. So even that view is is not in line with truth, that's not an agreeable view to have because it's not in line with truth, it doesn't bring you to the end of suffering. The Buddha did manage to waken the Brahmin up, just pointing out the limitation of his viewpoint. Sariputta was listening, he was fanning the Buddha, he became enlightened completely dropped all his attachments listening to that. Perhaps contemplating more deeply the nature of delusion, how the mind grasps that everything is self, holds on, therefore bringing rise to more birth and death. How often in our practice we keep attaching to a certain view. I just want to do it this way, and this is what I want to do now. I want this, I want that, I don't want this, don't want that. Rather than seeing a view as a view, as a condition of mind, we grasp out with ignorance. 
but just holding on to it as correct, as right, suitable for me. It's a view I'm used to holding on to. Maybe it's some a view we've held for a long time and we can use it to make decisions, to get out of what we don't want, what get out of what we don't like, to get what we do want. And up to a certain extent, it probably it might even work, which is why we hold on to it. But on a deeper level, and even a level we might even notice but don't yet admit, it's actually not a correct view, it's not in line with truth. That's why we still suffer. That's why the mind still proliferates, has a sense of me, mine, liking, disliking, happiness and suffering. Ajahn Chah said, Diti Yamana. The main obstacles when we come into the monastery, your Diti is attaching to the views, what's right and wrong, good and bad. Mana is the holding on to them, holding on to the view with the sense of self. It means conceit, but sort of practical manifestation of it is that sense of self that forms around our experience and, and holds on to the views about different things. It gives rise to a sense of me and you comparing. So we compare and compete with other, perhaps with other members of the community. You know, I like this one, don't like that one. This one's right, that one's wrong. This one does it in the right way, that one does it in the wrong way. This one gets more than me, this one gets less than me. I'm better than this one, I'm worse than that one. All that sort of proliferation, whether it's about in the monastery or going out into the world, is ditti mana at work. And this is what we have to look at, bring up, to contemplate using that peaceful mind. Actually contemplate a little bit more deeply, poke around, challenge some of our own views and opinions on things. See whether they're really in line with them or they're really for our benefit. If we keep looking and being willing to look more deeply at our own mental experience and the way we're doing things day by day, then we'll learn. That's why we're here. We're here to learn, to look, to learn, to develop the mindfulness, to develop the understanding that helps us to free from suffering. We have to look more carefully what feeds suffering in the mind, what brings the mind to a sense of resolution contentment, peace. When understanding arises and the mind tends to go quiet, doesn't it? It goes still, it goes quiet because we understand something and the mind lets go. The true wisdom leads to letting go, letting go of attachment to views and opinions, sense of self, letting go of the 
desires we have based on the senses liking and disliking, wanting, not wanting the more we develop understanding then the mind will go quiet go still, not because it's asleep, because it's awake aware of the true nature of things to experience that we have to give it time keep putting in effort, keep practicing bringing up efforts in the practice being patient enough, willing enough to keep applying the practice little by little we probably have some experience where the mind does go quiet, goes peaceful and we can recognize that, see that for what it is So I'll leave you with these uh, thoughts for your contemplation tonight.